Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. Each week, we delve into a couple of specific leadership challenges. But in this episode, I talk to a highly accomplished woman about the common leadership mistakes we all make. Ainsley Van Onslen is the CEO of Chartered Accountants Australia and New Zealand. Prior to this, she had a parallel career as a law partner and non-executive director, before progressing into senior C-suite executive roles, including managing director and CEO of Rams Home Loans and running Westpac's $200 billion retail deposits and credit card portfolio. Ainsley Van Onslen, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. How long have you been the CEO of Chartered Accountants? About three and a half years now, Helen. I started in the height of COVID, May 2020. So I didn't see my executive team for about three months, actually. Well, we might come back to that and talk about um, leading through a hybrid team. And I imagine transferring um, back into the office. But you began as a lawyer. You went into banking. What attracted you to this role? Primarily because it was for purpose. It's a not-for-profit It's one of the largest, uh, well, it is actually the largest single course provider in Australia. So our graduate diploma program for chartered accountants uh, is TEXA accredited and it's the largest, as I said, single course provider. So that was a real attraction. There were some challenges that the profession was facing, which I found, I always like a challenge, so I found that attractive. So things like attractiveness of the profession, There's been a decade-long decline in finance accounting graduates at universities, which is primarily our pipeline to the CA designation. It has a very big advocacy arm in terms of policy advocacy for government and also more broadly. But I think the thing that really attracted me was the fact that accounting was moving into the sustainability area um, as such a critical role. So about a decade ago... Prince Charles, as he was then, King Charles now, set up a group called Accounting for Sustainability. And there was a reference at that point that accountants can save the world, which kind of sounds like hyperbole, I get it. But without accurate, consistent, measurable data regarding what's happening, not only with climate, but all the other ESG matters, nature, biodiversity, etc., that has to be assured, I believe, by people who do this thing for a living, and that is the auditors, the assurers, the finance preparers. And you see that now, finally, there's been such great global movement on that with the publication of uh, general and climate standards, and that will, you know, iterate to biodiversity and nature. So that to me is something that really gets me out of bed in the morning, that part of this global movement to ensure that 
we can minimise greenwashing as much as possible and that investors, capital markets, et cetera, have good quality data when they're looking at what company says they're doing in the sustainability area. I know you've also been a very prominent voice for women in whatever role you've had. Was the fact that there are not enough women taking that finance path a motivator for you? And, you know, for anyone who's not familiar with what I'm saying, I'm saying women tend to get promoted into executive leadership positions from marketing, uh, human resources, not the pointy uh, financial side of the business, which ultimately, more often than not, leads to the CEO roles. Was that a part of your thinking? Absolutely. Of course it was. Uh, I didn't want to go into uh, what I'd probably describe as a functionary role. Uh, I wanted a P&L role and pursued them strongly when I was in banking. That led to being the CEO of Rams Home Loans. I took a couple of functionary roles in the lead up to that particular P&L role and others that that followed it. But yes, absolutely. I, I do think I have a theory that when you're looking at your career as a young woman, you look at professions that have quite set career trajectories, i.e. you go in as a junior, you become a director, you become a senior associate, then you become a partner. And that's probably why women pursue law potentially more so than finance, although that is changing, by the way. There's a lot more women going into finance than previously. And But finance itself is this kind of a little bit esoteric, unless you're in an accounting professional practice. That's, again, got a traditional professional pathway. But finance itself has such great opportunities in it. But because they're not readily apparent to you when you're in your late teens, early 20s, when you're trying to decide what career to choose, you don't necessarily go for them. But you're absolutely right, Helen. It is those P&L type roles that lead to CFO positions and CEO positions ultimately. And how difficult was it for you to be recognised and seen in order to pick up a P&L role? Like, how much of a struggle was that for you? Well, no one's going to give it to you on a plate, right? So you always have to look out for yourself and look out for your career. Particularly when I was in banking, I looked at those women that did have those P&L roles and I looked at their career trajectory and what I would call the hot jobs that they went into that basically rounded them out. So I was very self-aware that when I came into banking, I had 20 years of legal experience and about the same in non-executive directorships. I was financially literate because I've done a Masters of Applied Finance, but hadn't really proven myself in a big P&L role. So I looked at those other women's pathway and trajectory. I had discussions with my direct you know, group executive at the time in terms of these are what my ambitions were. I didn't hide my ambitions. <laughs> by any imagination, um, and made it very clear that this is what I wanted to do. And so proactively with a great people and culture group executive and also with my direct boss, we were able to actually manage and plan my trajectory to a certain extent. And then also when opportunities came up, like the Rams role, for example, I even though there was 20 people in the running for that, I did everything I could possibly do to make sure that I was being considered for that role. I just want to touch on briefly the point about ambition because you and I came through at a similar time in in completely different organisations, but we came through at a time when ambition for women was not a desirable trait. How did you manage that in the sense that did you just be unapologetic about your ambition or were you at times feeling like you needed to hide it because it was a negative? I don't think I've ever... Hidden it. 
I had the role model of some pretty incredible, ambitious women. So people like Julie Bishop, Lucy Turnbull, Gail Kelly. I've worked alongside them and seen them at close hand. And sometimes we confuse ambition as being aggressive or being a pain. And I don't think I've ever been that. There's a nuance to how you pursue opportunities, right? And it's not by being a victim and expecting people to give you things. It's by outlining a really good business case as to why you think you're appropriate for that next role. Keeping an eye out, just generally having good conversations with people that you like and respect and being authentic to who you are. So I think, you know, in your and I, our dealings, we've always had a really beautiful, amiable relationship, right? And, and that's something I try and be across the board. So yes, I'm ambitious, but I'm pretty low-key about it as well, if that makes sense. It's hard to kind of, yeah, it's hard to put in words. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I could also talk about that for quite some time. But I want to explore with you because I know the breadth of your experience and your achievements. So I want to explore common leadership mistakes. And I think there are the ones that you make when you first start. Uh, and then there's the ones you make when you are at the top of your game. So let's help our listeners out a bit and talk about our failures and the ones we witnessed. So can you share some mistakes that you see or that you made when you first started out in leadership roles? My first leadership roles really were as a non-executive director because when you're in a law firm, whether you're a partner or you're part of a team, you generally operate in silos as part of small teams and you're generally very collegiate, so there's be about three or four of you. So I don't really define that as a leadership role per se. As a non-executive director, you're, I guess you're at the top of the governance tree, so that there is a sense of leadership in that. I started those roles, I was on an ASX-assisted company when I was in my early 30s and on other boards, etc. And I would say the primary mistake I made then, and this simply was inexperience, was that the way I posed questions was probably somewhat suspicious or cynical. And that's probably something that I regret. I have now had the opportunity and had the wisdom of being able to witness really senior experienced directors. And that the way that they're able to pose questions, still keeping a management team accountable, but they do it in a much more softly way. And maybe that was because I was a litigator at that time and you are much more aggressive as a litigator generally and you're much more sort of forensic and you, you tend to cross-examine people. But I've learned that that was a mistake, which I think probably might have damaged my relationships with those management teams that I was on the board of. Going forward more broadly, I'd now try and couch my questions in more of a curiosity way, while still obviously trying to elicit information and, and accountability. So if I just stop you there for a minute, so you would pursue a line of questioning with a tone, not necessarily you weren't necessarily accusing them of something. It just sounded like that. Mm, yeah, it was just this element of suspicion or that they're trying to put one over you type thing. And, and I see it now. I see it on in other areas of management where I can see the inexperienced directors because that's the line they pursue. It's almost like you've got something to prove, right? So you read your papers really diligently and you find all these minute little questions and it's not that you're trying to have a got your moment, but it's almost like you're trying to prove to everyone around the table, particularly when you're the youngest or you're the only woman, that you know you you can add value. 
I've now learned that it's much easier just actually to ask less questions and see the interactions of management around a team and around a table and then really focus on the actual issues that are significant and that matter to the organisation. In terms of leadership properly, so that's really only happened to me So I discount my leadership in law firms because I just don't think it's big enough to really warrant it. But when I was in banking, and that's when I had teams of like 100 and, you know, up to 1,000 plus at that stage, probably the common mistake I made then, and sometimes occasionally still do, is I get a little bit black and white about things. And it's either good, you're either good or you're bad and a bit judgy. And uh, and again, it's probably, again, that's a litigation background. You're either right or you're wrong. And so that's something I sort of wish, I think, in some of my experiences that maybe I'd given people more of the benefit of the doubt, tried to find a way forward or a path forward in which we can work together, notwithstanding my sort of inner or first judgment calls. No one's perfect, right? So everyone has bad days. Well, I find that, I find that judgy thing utterly fascinating because I talk about it a lot in the context of FW because we're fighting for equality and we think we're on the side of good. So it's very easy for the team to define good and bad in that context. But you're right, the older you get, the grey becomes so much more obvious and you start to realise everyone's trying to do their best um, not everyone has been brought up in a feminist environment understanding the pay gap. So it's a constant battle, I find, at this stage in my life to explain to others more than myself because I've totally graduated from that. I've graduated from judgy. <laughs> I'm, now, I'm now in the point of view I where, hope I have. <laughs> oh, you know, oh, really? I, I just, everyone's just trying to do their best. <laughs> Um, but I but I totally identify with it because I'm pretty 100% sure you go into journalism because you're pretty judgy and you want to make a difference and you've got very clear ideas of right and wrong. So I think that's part of what propels you in those early years. Yeah, I think, you know, you see it in what's happening in social media at the moment, like you're either to the far left or the far right, that sort of <laughs> centrist piece is something we need to remember that we can sometimes agree to disagree and it doesn't make us necessarily bad or, or right people. That is very hard in today's social media environment. Um, you've been, as I said before, such a vocal supporter of women and widely known as that. Do you see women making different mistakes to men? That's a very fraught question. Uh, well, research shows that there are whether you define them as mistakes or not is another thing. But it does show that even applying for a job, for example, a woman will look at the criteria for selection and will be much tougher on her experience applied to that criteria, where a man will probably go, yep, tick, 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 I'm right for the job. And if I miss a few bullet points on the criteria, who cares? Now, there's studies to show that that is the case. But sometimes a woman is it's defined as a mistake, but it's not really a mistake. There's other research that shows, and they do this through CV analysis and interview analysis and things like that, that if in an interview for an application or for a job, a woman goes, I, I too much, or I do this and I do this and I lead that, she's then considered 
self-aggrandizing or bossy or too aggressive. But then if you do the, we do this, we do that, we do this, it's she's too consensus orientated, she's too weak. So there's a little damned if you do, damned if you don't. And I don't think that's a mistake. I think it's just how women are viewed or analysed and that's the job of all leaders and particularly recruiters to make sure they remove that unconscious bias when they're having interviews with women. And there's thankfully there's a lot more understanding of that these days than there perhaps was, you know, in the 90s or 2000s. So, yeah, it's not necessarily a mistake per se, but I think those issues still exist out there. So we have to work within those boundaries in a sense, like women going for jobs have to be aware that they're walking quite a difficult tightrope. Have you ever pulled aside someone and said, you can own this success a little more or be aware that these are challenges that you might face in an interview situation? What sort of advice do you give to women who are in your orbit? Just to be authentic. So don't apologise for your success. Don't hide it under a bushel. One of the frameworks we introduced when I was in banking was that actually give women longer to be interviewed. It takes about 15 minutes for a man to tell you how great he is. It takes about an hour for a woman to form a relationship with you where she feels comfortable in telling you about what her achievements are. I've also counselled women to be much more specific about the financial achievements that they achieved. Sometimes they're talking about a project, but they're not talking about exactly what KPIs were achieved in that project and what was the financial contribution to the business, which is important. Where If you're in a commercial business, that actually does matter and to make that a prominent part. And I think, again, as long as you stay humble and authentic but still show that you're a driven growth performance type leader, then I think that will shine through regardless if you're applying for a company that gets it and is good for women. If you're applying at a company that isn't great for women, then no matter what you say, you're damned. (laughs) (laughs) That's excellent advice. about the mistakes, the common mistakes that people make at the top of the pile. What do you think are the common ones? I would say a lack of loyalty. And it takes a lot of hard work and pain that people put themselves through for their boss, particularly a boss that's given them their position, given them opportunities, given them promotion, etc. But the thing that I have seen or experienced is loyalty is a two-way street. So it, it shouldn't just be about the boss expecting that you give loyalty, expecting that you use your discretionary time away from your family on weekends or at nights, et cetera, for them because they earn it or they deserve it. You've got to have this two-way street of loyalty. Otherwise, that person will no longer give you their loyalty or they'll walk away and they'll find someone who does. And in my time, I have had bosses that I would and still would walk over hot coals for, and there are other bosses that I wouldn't give the time of day for. And I think that comes down to that that piece. At the same time, though, it's not blind loyalty, right? So don't get me wrong, it's not unethical or blind loyalty. You also have to be seen as a leader to treat people without fear or favour. 
and that you don't have favourites. And there's a saying that is, praise loudly, criticise softly. And I try and generally, or criticise, you know, one-on-one. And I try to adhere to that. I think that's a pretty good leadership principle. But as long as it's not at the expense of having teams that can have constructive criticism in a meeting and debate, open debate, about key decisions. Too many times I've seen in businesses where the decisions are made outside of the room, in the corridors, because everyone's too afraid of actually having a challenging discussion when everyone's there. They're almost too afraid of the debate. And and that's a common leadership mistake I have seen and also potentially have done myself, but I try and avoid it at all costs. That's a really tricky one to manage. And I think it was... Pip Marlowe in this series where we had the same conversation. My suspicion, interested to hear what your response to this is, my suspicion is that works quite well when you're reasonably new in a role and the mistakes have been committed by a previous management team or leader. But as you get more confident in the job and you build your team around you, it gets harder to foster that kind of culture. Have you felt that? At times, yes. I think we all do. But there are ways, there's processes and systems that you can put in place to try and avoid it. So uh, we have what we call in, in my executive team at the moment, and we had a great coach and facilitator who gave us this idea, which is called the four-player model. So we have we rotate it, but an ET member has the job of being the observer, participant, but observer in the meeting and they look at who's proponent of ideas, who's challenging ideas, who's ensuring that there are actions and measurable outcomes from the discussion, and who are followers, who are agreeing to an idea put forward. And the reason why we introduced that particular model is I wanted to make sure that when we make a decision, there's cabinet solidarity behind that decision, And it's not, oh, yeah, no, I never thought we should have made that decision down the track. So it's a really good way of fleshing it out in the meeting itself. And I have found personally it's been a terrific way of ensuring that we have a really good robust discussion because everyone's now quite conscious that they're getting measured on whether they're putting ideas up, whether they're following, whether they're challenging or whether they're making sure we're articulate on the decision we've made, that everyone's now sort of contributing a lot more than they did. It's kind of a play on the, you've probably heard the black hat model, so have someone have a black hat in the room. I've tried that model as well, but sometimes that can get a little bit destructive rather than constructive. Someone takes that role a bit too personally. Um, this this is a, a good way of ensuring that as an executive team, you remain accountable and have the decisions and the conversation in the room. But I imagine in your team, you have the ideas person and the natural leader. That's not you, it's in your team. And then you've got the peacemaker consensus person that's really good at implementing it. And if you flip that, they would both feel wildly uncomfortable. Probably, and maybe they were at the start, but we've kind of got used to it now. So I think the balance is there. There's always, I mean, have you heard of the DISC model? Sort of when you have the dominant, so everyone will have their own particular nature of where they sit on that DISC model, right? And it's good to have a good balance of that. So you will have the people that are more facilitative and more nurturing and more gentle. And you'll have sort of the more dominant voices. And you'll have those that are really 
detailed and almost the sort of like the anchor to the decisions. And then you'll have the, which is probably what I am, the ones that are just ideas and want to have growth and momentum and just keep on progressing. It's really good to have someone who's an anchor who can slow you down and put a little bit of guardrails around those. So that's a good thing. In that context then, when you're interviewing for a new member of your team, what are you looking for and how do you make a decision? Because it sounds like you give an awful lot of thought to that makeup of your executive team. Actually, all applicants for many of our key roles, we get them to do the DISC profile. So we sort of understand that. So they'll do that personality type psychology testing. I think that's really important. It's not a decisive factor, but it's an interesting factor and something that you can take forward. I think cultural fit is really important. By that, I don't mean groupthink or that we all think the same way or look the same way or et cetera, have the same views. But I think, you know, we spend so much time at work that you really do want it to be a collegiate place to be where there's genuine fellowship and genuine like of each other. You don't have to be the same kind of person, you don't have to be best friends. But I think that's important. So generally when when I'm interviewing, I'll actually get them to interview most of our executive team and we'll all have a point of view and perspective which gets taken into account and considered. So it is important. The fact that they're good at what they do is probably a given. They wouldn't really get up to that, you know, even get through the interview process if they didn't have the skills or the experience or the intelligence, etc. So... Generally, that's already there, should be there. Are you good at hiring? I don't know. Actually, that's really interesting. I think I am. I think probably what I think I'm better at is actually promoting people from within so and developing talent. I think that's probably something where like doing succession planning, having business coaches for that next level who could take those jobs, working out where the, who in the key talent in your organization actually is ambitious and wants to take the next step. Because there's a lot of people who are perfectly happy doing their subject matter expert piece that they're doing. They don't want to necessarily have a big people leadership role or run a particular region, for example. But you'd be surprised that there's a lot of quiet people out there who are actually really ambitious. So that's what I try and do. I try and unearth talent within the organization primarily. And then if we do need external expertise, then you know, obviously you have good recruiters, you have a great people and culture team, and they're all really part of that decision-making as well. It's certainly not just me. One of the things that's hard to discuss publicly is the criticism privately made about how badly women sometimes treat each other. And I'm delicately raising this with you because it comes up um, all the time as I move around organisations and, you know, barbecues, etc. Do you have those conversations privately? And if so, what's your reaction to them? Well, first, I probably have lots of private and public conversations about how well supported by other women I have been as well. So just putting that out there first. But yes, of course, I would have those private conversations. Like many women, I've had the experience in workplaces where there's been a bit of a mean girl culture or an experience where I felt that it was unfavorable treatment and unfair treatment by another woman. And yes, I would have spoken about those privately with my girlfriends or in my family life. I've also had some pretty average experiences with men, by the way. And But maybe it does hurt more as a woman because, you know, from schoolgirl, cult, school, you know, school ground 
years, you know, you want to be liked generally as a person and maybe you expect more from women. Maybe it's our own personal bias where we expect more from men. We're kind of used to it from, more from women, I should say. We're used to it from men. I guess the key though is to not let you let that drag you down at all and and try and be self-aware that you might be putting too much emphasis on it than you would in other bad experiences you might have in the workplace. Yeah, it's, a, it's just a... I hope that makes sense. <laughs> no, it, it does make sense. And I just wanted your um, assistance with how to have those private conversations because they're heartfelt experiences and very distressing for people at times and yet difficult to manage because, as you say, the experiences of being poorly treated by men in the workplace feels very different. And I think perhaps that's the difference. It's how it feels, not necessarily whether it's... Yeah, the scar tissue feels, feels yes. more painful. Yes. Um, how would you describe your leadership style? It varies in the circumstances. So generally, I'd be a consensus-led leader, I hope. And that generally involves, because you're chairing executive team meetings and the like, that I will ask for the opinions and voices for everyone around the table. And if there is a dominant voice, then I'll specifically ask a person to contribute, who's been more quiet, to contribute their views or opinions. I generally like to have cabinet solidarity and so, and therefore consensus means that when you leave the room, an executive team room, we actually have messages that we're going to say to our senior leadership forums post-set meeting. And it is best, in my view, to have everyone behind you so to make unanimous decisions if you can. But there are times, particularly in crisis times, other natural disasters, cyber matters, you name it, where actually you've just got to be quite authoritative and you have to be, it's a different kind of leader where you've got to make the call based on very limited information and then you just got to own it, that this is the captain's pick that I'm making or this is the captain's call that I'm making and this is why and then try and bring back the systems as you go through that crisis where it becomes much more of a consensus-orientated decision. But yeah, it, it, it changes, I think. You're a mother of two girls. Can you see the differences for them compared with your own career experiences? Yes, I can, I think. I mean, they're still at school, but my hope for them, they're very strong, opinionated young women uh, with very terrific views of the world as I hope and would expect them to be, they will have very strong views on how their workplace should treat them and they will not be afraid to call that out. And my hope is that with some of the great legislation that we've seen recently, including respect at work legislation and zero tolerance, where there's now an onus on employers to properly investigate these types of matters, if they have that experience, which I hope they don't, but if they do, that when they call it out, that it will be dealt with properly and accordingly. I think back in my time in the 90s, I didn't have those kind of protections. Women didn't have those protections around them. So you learnt to stay quiet. You learnt to go with the flow. You didn't want to be seen as sort of the agitator. It didn't mean that you took on male-like attributes. I've always tried to be me and the woman that I am. But I definitely, you know, I try and avoid experiences and, you know, other women would talk to each other and you would try and avoid experiences which might put you in a vulnerable situation or you might have some type of harm by other men or by men. Um, 
uh, my hope is that my daughters do not have that because of the legislative practices that are now in place. The other piece I think is, I mean, they're quite funny because they call me a third wave feminist because they're very strong fourth wave feminists. And so this idea of white female privilege is something that we talk about quite a lot at home. And, you know, it, it, it has been tough sometimes. You know, you'd know this, being the only woman around a, a director's table or the only woman on a partnership table. And that is less seen now. Women are coming into corporate environment uh, en masse and we will see more women at those senior leadership positions. I mean, back to your point earlier about women criticising other women, my expectations will probably see more of that, right? Because the more women that are in C-suite positions, et cetera, there will be inevitable conflict that that arises. Um, my fear is it might be considered differently in the public arena, more like sort of a cat-like fight, whereas with men you see those dust-ups happening all the time. You know, witness Rugby Australia, for example, in the last couple of weeks, and we all sort of go, oh, yeah, whatever, it's just men being men. Well, that was part of the context of that question, that the more women in leadership positions at the table, the more likely there is going to be conflict because diverse backgrounds means diverse opinions. And there's going to be an expectation that it's all going to be sweetness and light. And in actual fact, you're going to get incredibly capable, competent, opinionated, clever women who are not necessarily going to agree on anything, actually. And that's going to be challenging for boards and leadership teams as we see more of that. And in my own experience, I've seen that. There's no outbreak of calm and, and um, cupcakes. It's, it's a really feisty environment. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking for good outcomes and different opinions. As it should be, because women are as ambitious, as competitive as men, right? So... Just like on the and netball court. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it just feels like we just need to get through that next hump, right? Um, so that that's kind of okay, that we can have a rugby union dust up without it leading to lots of pictures in the newspaper and assessments about the quality of a handbag or a house. Yeah, yeah. It, shouldn't, it just shouldn't, gender just shouldn't come into it. It shouldn't be part of the discussion when that happens. And right, so back to your daughters or your daughter's generation, more to the point. Are you starting to see that influence in your workplace? Because again, I'm, you know, having those conversations. And, and actually, Ray Cooper sat in this studio talking to me about the quite dramatic shift in that new wave of feminists and, and how they won't tolerate crap. Are you starting to see that in your workplace and find that, you know, a, a new challenge to... To navigate? Yes, and I'm, I'm happy that I am as well. So at another workplace, so not the one I'm currently at, but where I've had a position where there was some unacceptable behaviour, low level, but persistent unacceptable behaviour by a male in that team, that came to my attention. We immediately acted on it and that person was exited. And one of the reasons was that was because this young woman built the cat on it. Then a whole lot of other women sort of more my age, they also had had similar experiences, which when that got investigated, that came out and discussed. And the women, my age, older women, said, oh, we never thought anyone would do anything about it. Whereas the young woman's expectation was absolutely we would do something about it, and we did. 
And I want to be able to look young women in the eye and go, yes, I've heard you. I've listened to your thoughts. They've been investigated. Due process and natural justice has been applied. And we have acted. I think that's really important. You've also worked alongside a high-profile partner. Um, What lessons can you share about juggling two big careers? Primarily, um, try and stick to your swim lanes. I mean, honour each other's career choices, I think, first and foremost. And, you know, there'll be peaks and troughs for each of you in that period. And so there'll be flexibility in, in who's doing more on the home front at any given time where that might exist. So at the moment, probably my partner is more sort of, has got some time in his career at the moment to do more on that which is great, but I did all the heavy lifting when they were seven and under, so it's kind of riding itself. But we're very, very 50-50 generally um, in terms of the logistics side of things. But also, particularly because he is more public and more high profile, it, it is quite, it's great when things are fabulous and doing really well and you're on a high. It's lovely to witness that as seeing your partner have that joy in their life. It gets harder when you see them being criticised, and sometimes it's criticisms that you agree with, actually, in private. But if there's criticisms where you don't agree with it and you think, oh, my God, he's being really wronged or, you know, you feel really like you want to come in and help and support him and defend him publicly, but it just ultimately I always stop myself from doing that because everyone will know probably, well, what else would you expect? You know, you're married to him kind of thing. And so I just... When I say stick to your swim lanes, it, you know, they have to defend themselves, I guess. And I've got to defend myself as well. I'm not, you know, I'm not adverse to getting criticism somewhat, sometimes publicly as well. And I've got to defend myself. I don't expect my partner to come in to defend me and it has to be likewise as well. So that's probably a more nuanced <laughs> answer than you're expecting. But no, no, it's a great answer. Yeah. No. Because, you know, we, we, I've watched you do it and I think you've had an incredible partnership and particularly around that 50-50, knowing your, your advocacy and you've not only had the advocacy uh, within all your organisations but uh, and publicly, but you've lived it as well. Any final advice for the next generation of Ainsley Van Onslands? <laughs> um, stay positive stay resilient, uh, keep learning, keep educating yourself either formally or informally, read lots and lots and lots of books, um, psychology books, philosophy books, leadership books, you name it, Um, just always have one on your bedside, always keep reading. I think that will mean you kind of hopefully retain your self-awareness and where you can always consistently improve yourself. I think that's really important. But primarily, you need to be, you know, I've heard this line before, but you need to be the CEO of your career. No one else is going to be invested in your life or your career or your choices as yourself. And no one's going to give it to you on a plate. And so you need to work out what's best for yourself and your family and what your ambitions are and try and be authentic to that and do what you love as well. That's what I say to my daughters. Ainsley Van Onslen, I've now known you for many years and known many women that have come into your orbit. You are regarded as a great leader and a great advocate for other women and you have always supported women in every role that you've held. So 
Thank you for sharing your wisdom today. And um, it's a great privilege to know you. Thank you. Thanks, Helen. It's great to be here. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall. 